You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For December 25th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. For the first time, our regular every other Wednesday show launch schedule has landed on Christmas Day. We don't take production breaks for holidays and vacations, and we don't do seasons of shows here. We just keep turning out a show every two weeks, rain or shine. But I did want to recognize and honor this special day, which is why subscribers just heard a clip from the classic Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol, in which Scrooge gets a glimpse of the humanity of coal miners. In Dickens' day in mid-19th century England, coal miners lived in harsh conditions indeed. One wonders if they dreamed of a future in which men would not need to labor in the bowels of the earth to dig up rocks that burn. Fortunately, that future is now arriving. In fact, it's coming at us faster every day. And in keeping with the spirit of the season, and that one day of the year in which many of us take a moment to be grateful for our blessings and think optimistic thoughts, today we're going to talk with our old friend Christopher Clack, who you'll remember from his previous appearances on the show in episodes 29 and 46. His team has produced two recent reports that offer very good news indeed for the prospects of energy transition. One on Minnesota and the other on Colorado. Both of them show that not only will it save everyone money to transition our power generation off of fossil fuels and onto wind, solar, and storage, they also show that by moving space and domestic hot water heating onto the power grid by switching to heat pumps and by moving transportation onto the power grid by switching to electric vehicles, the savings for consumers will be even greater. And not only just for those rich enough to buy a luxury EV. This modeling shows that all consumers will benefit from these transitions, even those who don't own a car. Even better, it shows that the more we decarbonize, the more money it will save all consumers, the more jobs will be created, and the closer we will get to addressing the climate challenge. These are very exciting findings, I think, and they really overturn the conventional belief that energy transition will cost customers more money and result in fewer jobs. The reality is that energy transition is going to be a win for everyone, even, ultimately, our beleaguered coal miners as we pursue the kind of just transition efforts we have discussed previously on this show, such as the Colorado law we discussed with Representative Chris Hansen back in episode 92. Between his strategy for retiring coal plants and the findings we're going to hear about today, there's no reason why anyone should find a lump of coal in their Christmas stocking ever again. Then in the news segment, we'll salute the latest addition to a massive solar farm in the United Arab Emirates at a nearly record low price. We'll note California's latest move in the fight with the Trump administration over its emission standards. We'll hail a big move toward electrifying ferries, and we'll wrap up with another exciting episode of Coal Death Watch. But before we move on to the interview, I just wanted to let our loyal subscribers know that you can now get an email alert whenever a new show launches. Just log into our website, click on the little menu in the upper right-hand corner of the screen and go to the Manage Subscription page where you'll find a little checkbox to opt in to email notifications. 
And now our conversation with Christopher Clack, recorded December 12th, 2019. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Christopher, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, great to be here. So today we're going to talk about two major reports that you've done on how U.S. states can achieve their greenhouse gas reduction goals through energy transition. One for Colorado, which you just published last month, and another for Minnesota, which you published last year. And I think they both have broadly useful insights to offer. So let's just dive right in with the Colorado study. What was the objective of that study? Yeah, that's a great question. So this study was commissioned by Community Energy, a development company here in Colorado. And the objective was really to look at three main things. One is, what's the business as usual? What happens if we keep all the coal plants online? The second thing is, what happens when we retire them early? Do we save money? Does it cost us money? What's the impact on the grid in terms of reliability and robustness? And then the third thing is, if we bring new loads to the grid through electrification to try and decarbonize other sectors, how does that impact the cost for customers, the emissions from the economy, and how the whole grid actually holds up against all those new demands that are being placed upon it. Okay, so kind of a standard cost and benefit analysis of coal retirement then? Well, we're looking at co-optimizing across the whole of Colorado, looking at how we replace these resources, how new loads impact it, what resources can replace it reliably, do wind, solar, and storage play a big role? Does demand flexibility play a big role? So we did a full cost optimization of the whole system to really try and understand how the interplay happens because it starts getting really complicated when you start replacing large percentages of the grid. Right. Okay. So how did you go about doing the modeling? So we actually used one of our models called Wisdom, which is weather-informed systems for design, optimization, and modeling or operations and modeling. And what that basically does is it looks at both the capacity expansion, which is the long-term view of how the generation supply and demand mix changes, and then the what we call the production cost, which is like the day-to-day running of the grid, how every five minutes the grid is actually being dispatched across the whole footprint. And so we combined those two things together and we actually did one scenario where we kept coal alive essentially till 2040 in Colorado, but we actually modeled the whole of the Western grid called WEC to see how that changes over time as well and how that buffets Colorado. And then we did a second one where we just said, let's retire coal on a phase out that we actually discovered from a previous study we did to look at what's the economic way to retire them and see what the cost is of that and the benefits and then use those benefits to pay down some electrification capital costs to buy an EV or to get a heat pump cost extra money. And so we wanted to pay that down and make it easier. And so for the third scenario, we use that benefit to pay for some of that and then see how the grid responds to that additional electrification that comes online and actually adds demand and customers to the electricity side um, and how that then affects emissions, health impacts, jobs, costs for customers. And then, of course, the big one for the utilities is kind of how reliable is the system, how robust is the system, and how much wind and solar can we actually deploy on the footprint based on those new loads. And so how do you go about doing the the grid balancing modeling? Like how discrete is the temporal nature of the balancing? Where do you assume the resources are located? And is there actually the resource availability that you're assuming and so on? Yeah, so the details of wisdom are pretty dense. But on a simplistic level, what we have is we have a screening algorithm that tells us where we can site new technologies, wind, solar, storage, coal, gas, nuclear, anything that we think we can build 
the model has a screening to say on a three kilometer grid cell where in Colorado can you place it and again we did this across the whole of WEC but I'm just going to focus on Colorado here so we did the whole screening of where can you site things so we're obviously not going to place them on top of the flat irons or in the middle of Boulder or the middle of Denver but where can we site them and then layered on top of that we have the existing transmission system all the transmission nodes in Colorado all the substations all the transmission lines themselves and that's all done at three kilometers and then we have the temporal aspect which is every five minutes we dispatch this model and so we're looking at the weather data that we've built and created every five minutes at every location in Colorado is being the sort of inputs of like what could be built and then the model actually decides where to site the new wind and solar for example or the gas and so when you do that the model has to transmit the power has to think about transmission line losses it has to think about upgrading substations it has to think about where the loads are appearing and so we have to decide where are the evs going to show up where are the heat pumps going to show up all these different things come into play and everything's at a three kilometer resolution and then when we aggregate it together for the results it's kind of county level or higher but the actual sighting itself is three kilometers and so we really get a good depiction of where the sites are where the loads are and how we move the power between the two based on power flow and we do simplify the power flow just to be a dc approximation with losses so we don't do all the phases of the ac but you have to lose some resolution somewhere and that's where we typically reduce it a bit because we don't really need all that detail for the scale that we're looking at. Gotcha. So you've got really a great deal of confidence then in the forecasting for the renewable generation that you're modeling. How do you do the balancing aspect against the existing resources? Yeah, so the model dispatches it. So we have the estimations of what the wind and solar could produce if they are dispatched. And then the conventional generation, we have the ramping constraints on those generations. So for those that don't know, ramping is just how quickly you can increase or decrease the the output of a plant and that's based on numerous factors so one of the factors we include which we think is important is for a gas plant normally the limiting factor isn't the actual plant itself it's getting the gas into the plant and Mm. the pipelines into the plant to actually be able to ramp as it's needed and so we actually model the gas supply as well temporarily at the same resolution so we can really see that if you build a gas plant in a certain location and it needs to balance the renewables, it needs to be able to get the gas pipeline to it, it needs to be able to get enough gas to it to actually be able to do that. And that becomes increasingly important when you're looking at decarbonizing heating, for example, because you're moving where the gas is being distributed, if you will, in the system. And so what it basically does is it's co-optimizing and trading off between different resources and saying, I could build a wind farm here, this is the output we're going to get. This is the power flow. What do I need to supplement it? Can I build batteries? Can I flexibly move load, move the valleys around? Can I build a gas plant that'll help balance the whole system up? Do I just need capacity or do I need actual generation, megawatt hours versus megawatts? And so the model is constantly kind of trading off all these different aspects to continually make the lowest cost possible. And then we obviously verify it with multiple years of data. We don't just do it with one year. We do it with multiple years to make sure that it's robust enough. And so we have load following reserves, planning reserves, all built in to make sure that the model gives us a robust answer. Wow, that is robust. And I didn't realize that Wisdom was actually doing like gas pipeline pressure as well. That's really interesting. All right. So what did you find? What did the model show? Well, a few things. First is... Not a surprise to most people, we found that keeping coal alive in Colorado out to 2040 is the most expensive thing we can do. Huh. And the reason it's the most expensive is it's kind of blocking out other 
technologies, essentially. The ramping capabilities aren't quite as good. They're quite big units, so they take up a lot of the transmission infrastructure. And just keeping them around as time goes on just gets more and more expensive, essentially. We still see a cost decline over time because we do see some load growth over the longer term out to 2040. And I should say this model goes between 2020 and 2040. So we're just looking at a 20-year time horizon here. Then when we retire the coal, as we found before, we actually found that retiring the coal saves customers money just by retiring the coal and replacing it with whatever's economic. And what we find is economic, again, shouldn't be too much of a surprise, wind, solar, storage, and natural gas in Colorado. And we see around a 10% reduction in cost in terms of rates for that solution. And so what we do then is we say, well, retiring those coal plants early, let's take that money, which is around $1.5 billion in savings. Over what period of time? Over that 20-year period. Okay. Yeah, so it's around $200 million a year saving to actually retire them early. And so that was the first kind of striking thing was actually retiring coal early. A lot of the traditional thinking is retiring coal early must cost more, otherwise we would have already done it. Right. It doesn't quite work like that. Colorado's got a few mechanisms that are coming around securitization and other aspects that can help things. We don't actually use that in this model, so it would actually save more money. But just the transition to these other technologies does just save dollars. And so then the third one, with the deep decarbonization, this was really the the most surprising to us and the most sort of thought-provoking was when we added these new loads from EVs, so electrifying transportation and electrifying home heating, water and space, as well as commercial Um, what we found was we actually decrease rates even further. So we get nearly a 20% reduction in rates, 18% if you want to be pedantic about it, which is around a $4 billion savings by 2040 in the electric sector alone. And so by adding more load and reducing our dependency on coal actually allows us then to reduce our dependency on other assets as we add more loads. And so what we do in that one is all we do is we constrain the electric sector to reduce emissions And we ask it whether it's economic to bring in electric vehicles, bring in heating space and water from the other sectors to then drive more demand growth and flexibility to then invest in more renewables and more technologies, whatever's economic. And then does that actually give us a reduction on the economy that's in line with the stated goals of Colorado and elsewhere? And what we actually found was not only does it meet those goals, it exceeds those goals, and it's actually cheaper than the other options. And what I mean by that is the electric sector is cheaper for all customers, even if you can't electrify. But it also then is the cheapest path to decarbonizing because we give the model options to decarbonize in other pathways and it chooses to electrify basically as much as it possibly can out to 2040. Wow, that's really exciting. And just to reinforce the point, because this modeling scenario finds that it would save Coloradans $1.5 billion by 2040 as compared to keeping them running, that would, in fact, reinforce the plan that you mentioned a minute ago, presented by Representative Chris Hansen, which became law in Colorado earlier this year, which we discussed back in episode 92, which would provide a facility to securitize and retire the coal plants while saving the money for utility customers in the state by retiring them early. So in this second iteration of your model, you actually did go a step further and assume that the savings are now invested in renewables, which gave you that additional savings. Yeah, so we invested it in both renewables, energy efficiency, and then paying for some of the capital costs to bring in EVs, so to subsidize EVs and heat pumps. Great. Okay, so why did the model select a mix of wind, solar, and natural gas to replace the coal instead of some of the other options that might be out there? And what were the shares of those fuels in the final mix? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think anyone that lives in Colorado knows we've got great resources here. We do in Colorado, we have a good mix. Southeast has got good wind, Northeast has got good wind, and then the Southwest has really good solar. And from our modeling, what we see is one of the typical bottlenecks is the transmission. So one of the things we really concentrate on is how much transmission do we need to build? And there's two aspects to that. One is sharing with other states. In this model, we deliberately be conservative and we don't expand sharing across the rest of the wider WEC footprint. We wanted to kind of keep it localized. This would be like a worst case scenario because the further you can spread, I'm not going to go into details of it, but the more you can diversify your portfolio by sharing with other states, the better it becomes. And so what we did for the Colorado one was say, well, what do we have to switch on and off in Colorado to actually create a benefit? And the model's constantly trying to think about that. And so what it finds is by retiring the coal, you actually unlock huge transmission assets across Colorado, which are kind of blocking wind and solar development at the moment. Interesting. So yeah. it opens up transmission capacity just to get the coal out of the way. Exactly, yeah. And so by getting them out of the way, you have these big units disappearing that need to be backfilled. And the backfilling, the model wants to do it as cheap as possible. And so wind and solar are the cheapest resources available today, full stop. And then what people think about is, well, well, they're variable. They're not matched to the supply. And what we find is actually in the early years, a lot of the gas that we already have supplies that balancing. Hmm. And then as time goes on, we get see more and more storage taking that role. But then further, because we're adding these new loads, that huge amount of flexibility we get from these new loads, an EV doesn't need to be charged every night. It can be flexibly charged. Heat pumps can be more flexibly dispatched than a, than a furnace. And so what we find with that is that those flexibility assets that come online actually then support more renewables coming online. And then as time goes on, as storage prices decrease, based on the cost assumptions we have, storage then comes online and then replaces the gas. And what we see is we just see the evolution of the grid moving more and more towards essentially renewables. So in the deep decarbonization study, we're seeing around 83% of the grid being renewables by 2040. And we're seeing a huge decline in natural gas capacity but we're also seeing a decline in the natural gas actual generation as well, around a 30 to 40% reduction in natural gas actual generation. The reason it's not bigger is because we're actually supporting huge influxes of new demand. So we're seeing around a 30% rise in electricity demand because we're pulling all that from the other sectors. So over the economy, we're using a lot less natural gas. It's just in the electric sector, we're using less, but not as big a reduction as in the other sectors. Gotcha. So what was the final mix of wind and solar? So wind and solar was 80% in total, and we roughly have a 50-50 split, I believe, between wind and solar. I think with the solar, we see it sort of saturating a little bit before storage then comes in and really helps and supports it. But actually, wind and solar are really complementary to each other. And so we see nearly a 50-50 split of 40% wind, 40% solar as we go forward, with a little bit of favoritism from the model to the solar because as storage comes in like i say it's allowed to charge that more rapidly and then that gives it more energy density than say the wind house and so we see around 20 percent gas essentially and then 40 percent wind 40 percent solar interesting and so the storage is just sort of embedded in the wind and solar numbers there right because it's effectively collecting it and dispatching it but it's still the same resource yeah exactly yes it's essentially just absorbing any curtailment that might happen and then dispatching it at a later time. And what that actually does, even though Colorado doesn't have a market, if it was in sort of a market structure, what that would actually do is help keep prices more stable. In Colorado, that doesn't matter too much. So what we see with the sort of 
Colorado structure that we have is basically it's kind of like a social asset that just gets charged when there's depressed demand and then dispatches when there's elevated demand. And so basically it completely obliterates combustion turbines because you can just use free resources rather than expensive gas. Hmm. You know, one of the things I think that's interesting about the way you just described that Basically, there's a phased evolution of resources coming on and coming off. You're starting with using gas as a balancing resource, and then gradually that's replaced by storage as a balancing resource, et cetera. That's the kind of evolution over time of grid assets that I think the typical sort of back of the envelope gross estimate of like how much wind or solar would Mm -hmm. it take to do X, Y, Z on a grid misses, right? It's that evolutionary aspect of how things change over time that I think is so interesting. Yeah. And that's really true. And what we find is that because we have this pathway, you see how the different resources are mixing together at different costs. And then how the model's making the best of a situation that it's got. But also, wind and solar typically have a faster turnover rate of these bigger assets. And so, actually, the grid evolves faster and faster and faster and becomes this sort of, I don't want to say a living being, but like it's almost as if every year the grid is slowly like evolving all the time. And there's never like a fixed end solution. So, we stop at 2040 in this result. But if we get the model running, it would keep iterating and keep changing the mix as resources changed both their cost but also their efficacy in terms of generation and one of the big things that we see coming in is demand side flexibility kind of really shifts how things are done because you need less and less storage so you can make it more and more strategic and so the model is placing it in more strategic hubs rather than it just being sort of distributed everywhere it kind of condenses and then essentially the demand side flexibility becomes another form of storage and the heat in people's buildings becomes another form of storage and the heat in the water tanks. Basically, the model realizes that these are all actually storage assets that it can deploy, obviously with very tightly defined constraints, but it can deploy them and then suddenly it goes, hey, I can essentially shape my demand more and more to look like supply, which is complete inverse of how the system is run today, essentially. Hmm. Fascinating. So let's take a closer look at some of the interesting findings related to electrification, because obviously the demand side, as you say, becomes increasingly important as time goes on. That run of your model showed that electrifying transportation would save Coloradans $15.6 billion by 2040, or about $611 per vehicle. Is that mainly due to the lower cost of recharging an EV with electricity than refueling a conventional car with gasoline, or are you also integrating some of the grid benefits and other value streams there? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 
$5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A consortium of companies led by Saudi energy company ACWA Power and the Kuwait-based Gulf Investment Corporation has won the tender for the fifth phase of the huge Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum solar park with a bid to build 900 megawatts for just 1.69 cents per kilowatt hour. That price is just slightly above the lowest world record price to date of 1.47 cents, which was received in an auction held in Portugal in July. The Dubai Electricity and Water Authority will sign a 25-year power purchase agreement for the power and will hold a 60% stake in the project. The fifth phase of the project is to start becoming operational in 2021. When completed in 2030, the $13.6 billion solar park, which is located about 50 kilometers south of Dubai, will sport 5 gigawatts of solar capacity, including a mix of photovoltaics and concentrating solar power, as well as storage and hydrogen facilities. Item 2. In mid-November, California fought back against the automakers who sided with the Trump administration's effort to roll back California's right to set its own emission standards for vehicles. It declared that the state government would no longer buy cars from them. So GM... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.